This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash hands. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you have would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that, is, that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. But from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's word. So uh, we could either do this the easy way or the hard way. Um, Have you ever noticed, by the way, no one ever chooses the easy way? Right when uh, you know Detective Joe is trying to persuade the protagonist down from the rooftop, whether it be anyone from like Mr. Bean to Batman, and no one ever says, uh, "Oh, oh, easy way, coming down." <laughs> Here, give me the handcuffs. Right? No one ever chooses that way. Whenever you watch a film or a movie, instead people choose the hard way. But today, we will choose the easy way. Now, not the easiest way, because for this guy, that would mean handing off this passage, Mark 7, to Pastor Brett and say, hey, buddy, uh, I got a super special opportunity for you. (laughs) Here's Mark 7. (laughs) All right, Uh, that would be the easiest way for me, but certainly what we're going to do this morning is easier than spending three weeks going through all the background of the Jewish tradition and the rabbinic literature and explaining the differences between law and tradition and how the law applies today under the new covenant with Jesus, etc., etc., etc. This could get 
to be an absolute train wreck if we spend too long on it. But instead, what I hope that we at least see is that God's Word, even the strange, foreign, downright weird parts of it, relates to life today. For example, I discovered that I'm far more like the villains of this story than the victors, right? No one wants to be the Pharisee in the story, but there I was. Uh, We'll find out why most of our strategies and wisdom for living our lives the way we do must be necessarily temporary. And we'll also see that all of us institute and follow a governing rule of life, or you might call it a rule of thumb. But when we hold to it too tightly and for too long, it ends up harming God and others. So what I want to say to you, what I want to communicate in a nutshell this morning is this. Your rule cannot deliver what it promises. Your rule cannot deliver what it promises. All of us have rules by which we live, right? But longing for uh, simplicity, they typically focus on one or two rules to kind of govern our lives. Now, this rule doesn't always stay the same. In fact, we often change out our rules to see if A new one works better than the old one. Plus, these rules are typically well-intentioned. They're meant to either make us better lovers of God and neighbor, or if they're not from a biblical point of view, at least make us a better person. But what I think God is saying through his word as we bridge it from then to now is that your rule cannot deliver on its promise to make you a better lover of God and others, nor can it ultimately make you a better person. Now, I'm not saying that rules, habits, uh, goals are garbage, right? I'm not saying that. They can be useful, very useful, but when they start to govern our lives, they can't do what they promise, so we have to look elsewhere for a solution. And that's what Jesus will ultimately give us this morning. But this message should, because I think this is what Jesus is doing here, feel at first a bit deconstructive, right? It's going to hammer at our lives a little bit this morning. You've got to let it happen, all right? Less fluffy stories about bunnies this morning, more examples from life, because it's going to deconstruct our lives at first before we get to the solution that Jesus, I think, wants to offer us. So here's where we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to start with what's going on here And what's so wrong about it? And then second, why does my once helpful rule now no longer work? And then lastly, what should we do about that? So first, what's so wrong with holy sanitation and setting aside a trust fund for God? That's our first thing this morning. Please recall, we're going to take the a little bit easier route. Uh, I studied everything I could get my hands on about these issues and... uh, I want to summarize for you the most likely version of how religion for the Pharisees got to the point of washing hands and bowls and copper things and this weird thing called Corbin. How did they get to this point in their worship of God? We begin with the Pharisees and the scribes taking the love of God, loving God very seriously. Right? Jesus himself said that the law could be summarized in this way. Love God and love your neighbor. Mark 12, 30 and 31. 
It was a scribe of the Pharisee who actually asked Jesus to summarize the law and then afterwards commends Jesus for his answer. So it wasn't a disciple who asked the best question, right? It wasn't some ragtag person who's humble. It was a scribe of the Pharisee, the villain of the story. That's because the Pharisees took the love of God very seriously. I think it kind of went down like this. A scribe or a Pharisee took a season to focus on loving God, first by remaining pure and holy, doing all these washings and making sure that people didn't touch unclean things. And that's commanded in Exodus 30. And also a different season to focus on loving God with one's resources or tithes. And God commands that in Leviticus 1 and 2. Now the Pharisees, you recall, were a minority among the Jewish people who tried to make the law actually more doable for the common man. You might call them the blue-collar theologians, who were actually very practical, but also very hardcore about loving God as rightly as possible. So they were serious. So they'd take the law preached, all right, the law read and preached in the temple, and they'd follow up with these intense sort of table discussions about real-life scenarios to try to apply it to life. How can we get this into our lives? How can we apply this to real-life scenarios? So as a man's home is his castle, you may have heard that phrase before, and for a Christian, his family is his flock, a Pharisee believed his home was his temple. My home is my temple. The law required only the priests in the temple to clean up before they went to work. So the Pharisee said, look, my home is my temple, so how can we honor God? How can we make sure we get this law into our home and make sure we don't touch anything unclean? And if we do, we clean up, right? We wash, we purify ourselves. We might touch a rabbit. We might touch a fly. We might touch a mosquito. We might touch a lizard or something like wood or water that those things touched. If any touching was going on, all right, you had to wash up. So they thought, let's make sure everyone, not just the priest, washes before eating. So we're going to wash the pots, the pans, let's wash the table, let's wash the chairs. Every kind of thing that gets around eating, we're going to wash, just in case. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Seems pretty innocuous at least, right? Can't hurt anybody. Or can it? So I brought some hand sanitizers with me that I bought. A bunch of them uh, for a bunch of you guys. So I'm going to pass them out. Here we go. Hand sanitizer. I want you to start using these, all right? Here we go. Go ahead, clean up. You just shook some hands. You shook a lot of people's hands. I'm pretty sure you're thinking right now, like pr- that guy down the, down the aisle has a whooping cough. He had something, you know, he, some guy sneezed and do his hands, I'm sure, and then shook yours. So there you go. Here you go. Go ahead, wash up. Feel good about yourself. Feel like you're all clean. There's no harm in this, right? I'm just helping you stay germ-free, right? And and I'm I'm a loving pastor. But what if I told you that when I went out to buy these hand sanitizers, at that moment, Katie asked me, my wife Katie asked me to help do the laundry and also get the kids to bed, right? Same moment, I would have missed out on love, wouldn't I? I would have missed out on loving my wife as Christ loved the church. She says, how about laundry? How about helping with the kids? Get in the bed? I say, got to get hand sanitizers. <laughs> Sorry. See ya. Or having, you know, forgotten about the hand sanitizers and going out to buy them, Katie 
says, you know, let's go meet our new neighbors. And I said, you know, sorry. Sorry, honey, I've got to go to the store, and I've got to get my sanitation on. It's just got to happen, now or never. Right? Now, thankfully, that didn't happen, and Paul and Susie, our new neighbors, are a lovely couple, even though they're not pictured here. Couldn't get their permission. <laughs> now, what would have happened? You see here? My effort to love God better and love you by getting your hands sanitized would have distracted me from loving my neighbor in front of me. You see that? And that's exactly what would have happened to the disciples if they had lived by the Pharisees' rule. In their judgment, the Pharisees would have made the disciples go through all, that, all those sanitation ritual, rituals with their hands and the, the pots and the utensils before they ate and were satisfied. Do you remember that story from a couple weeks back? During the fish and the loaves scene. If they had to go through all those rituals, it would have prevented them from organizing the people into fifties and hundreds and handing out the food that God miraculously provided. Sorry, God. We've got to wash up. You see that? They couldn't have passed on the love of God to their neighbor. They would have been distracted. In the early hours before breakfast on the boat, if they were purifying bowls and utensils, it would have distracted them from seeing Jesus pass by and revealing who he is as he walked on the water, like we saw last week. But they may have missed it if they were back, right? Underneath the deck, washing their bowls and utensils. So when they say, why don't your disciples do this? Jesus, I think it's getting to this point that it's far more important to trust and love me as God and help these ragtag disciples learn to love their neighbor. That's far more important. This is the governing law and rule for life, to love Jesus, to love our neighbor. In other words, a well-intentioned rule for living can distract you from Jesus' rule. To love him and to love others. You see that? To hammer the point home, Jesus brings up another rule the Pharisees lived by called Corban. In this scenario... You can imagine a a rabbi or scribe preaching during a a season of the temple's life. Love God by giving to the temple. And again, this was in Leviticus 1 and 2. And as the Pharisees thought about this, they thought again about real-life scenarios and had discussions over lunch. How can we apply this to life? What about, you know, I know some people would have a problem with this because they only have so much money, so much earnings, and their parents are elderly also. What if they can't give to both? And they can barely afford one. First of all, Pharisees probably would have sat down and thought through which kind of giving is more important, giving to the temple or helping out our parents. And the Pharisees had these discussions all the time. The rabbis, they would sit down and just go through these discussions. Which is a greater priority? If we get in this situation, which is more important? And they determined the temple. The temple is more important because that's where God is worshipped. Plus, our parents as good Jewish parents would, will appreciate the fact that we're trying to please God first. Trying to please Yahweh first. So to make it easier and more manageable, they come up with this principle called Corbin. A person could take money, usually set aside for parents, and use it as a kind of trust fund for God. The money wouldn't actually go to the temple until one's death, until somebody died. 
so that they could still draw from that fund for ordinary use, quote-unquote, right? To go get groceries or to go get gas. You can still kind of draw from it if you're in a pinch. It would be like you or I drawing interest from a trust fund. The person hasn't yet deceased. Now, some people thought, that's a great idea. And of course it is, because it helped, A, it helped the rabbis, the priests, and the scribes, right? We're going to get all this money. It certainly helped the worker, the family, his immediate family, because he could say, you know, I can still draw from it if I really need it, yet it's kind of my tithe to God. But it kicked those elderly parents to the curb, didn't it? Who was going to stick up for them? Have you ever made or supported a decision that seemed to benefit most people, but secretly you agreed to it because you stood to benefit the most? Right? You're like, oh, yes, yeah, well, let's definitely do that. You put your weight behind that, because, but you know secretly, ooh, that's going to help me. God put it on our hearts, uh, Katie and I's hearts, uh, the idea to do a, a Christianity Explored group for teenagers. We start next Sunday, and we're, we're thrilled about it. When we first began discussing it, uh, Jeff and Susan Kummer offered their home to host these teenagers, and, and, and then Katie mentioned them as a, as a good couple and a good home to host, and then speaking with most of the parents, it was clear that most teens live near South Sound where they live, and it's right in the middle. So there are lots of good reasons to say, okay, this is a perfect place and perfect couple to host this group. From the beginning, I was a little extra supportive because it's Sunday already, I'm tired, and the comers live less than a mile up the road. And if I'm honest, I likely just supported the decision a little bit more you know, for me than I did for others because, you know, it was a little bit easier for me. You know, it was more convenient for me and had, you know, someone else volunteered and the, it was up in like West Bay or it was up in East End, I would have thrown probably an internal hissy fit. You know, if I'm really honest, like, oh. I think that's what happened here in formulating Corbin, right? Oh, yeah, this will help someone manage their money in a predicament, but secretly, oh, yes. It'll help me. I can still draw a little money off of it. Still use it to help my family. A rule intended to provide a holiday from Jesus' rule. Jesus' rule of love. There are two reasons we might put a governing rule into practice in our life. A, to better love or better ourselves, but also B, to take a vacation from love. To take a vacation from love. I, I hope you guys, by the way, got an opportunity to hear this past week Dr. Ravi Zacharias for at least one night. Um, on night two of Keswick, uh, he spoke on the book of Hosea. Wonderful book. My favorite book in the Old Testament, actually. And he said, at one point, he made this comment that love is the hardest work. You, you can never take a vacation from love. Right? You can never take a break or a rest from love. So it's the hardest kind of work. And I think it's also the hardest kind of work because love is toward a person. Right? Jesus, we love Jesus. Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He moves. He leads. He acts. Often unpredictably. And people are likewise unpredictable beings who will also let you down if you get close enough to really love them. And so, you know, rules we can control. A person 
We can't. So, what do we do? We make love a little more manageable, right? A little more predictable, a little more doable through rules. We put a hedge around it. Like my trifecta rule. Do what's best for God, others, and me whenever possible. Just for God, others, and me, but mostly me, if all those are possible. Let's do that. What's your rule? They don't have to even be explicitly religious rules. I wrote down 10 different rules for us this week, or or rules of thumb that people let rule their lives. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. So if any look familiar, just jot them down. I really want to encourage you to jot them down. You should have got a, a notepad or a bulletin you can write them down on. So the first one is the have it all rule. This is, if I do blank, then I can, I've pleased God and I can satisfy myself with a good life. Right? If I go to church, if I serve in the church, or if I, I read my Bible, if I pray that morning, then I've pleased God and I can also have the good life. Right? I can seek after riches and wealth. I can eat at the right restaurants, hang out with the right people. It's okay. I'm just going to seek after the good life. I've done my God thing. Call that the have it all rule. There's also the Jesus understands rule. This is, I go to church, and I'm kind to others, so I'm pretty sure God's just okay with the rest. He's just fine with the rest of my life. I love him, I'm kind to others, doesn't matter how else I live. Is that your rule? Here's another rule, I call this one the limits rule. I have two or three good friends, that's about all I can handle. Right? I, I can do one lunch a week, and that's it. I can only spend so much or give so much, and that's it. Also, I'm going to limit my vulnerability and opinion as much as possible. That keeps everybody happy. It keeps me comfortable. That's how I'm going to live my life. It's the limits rule. You notice how that restricts love? There's the no good to anyone rule. I can't be helpful to anyone unless I get enough sleep, I get enough me time, I get enough exercise, I get enough of my hobby that I enjoy, the routine I like to do. Otherwise, I'm no good to anyone. There's these others determine my happiness rule, which is I'll do whatever it takes for others to like, appreciate, and respect me. That's how I will love people. Do whatever it takes. There's the child rule. Parents, I do whatever's best for my child. <laughs> All right? Forget everyone else who's on the waiting list at the school or this thing. I, I'm getting him to the front. It's going to happen, all right? I don't care who gets in my way. And you notice, do you start to notice, I hope you're seeing how each of these rules can be turned against the law of love, right? How sin comes in and it actually turns a rule against the law of love. So in this instance, it's sometimes far better to withhold from our child, let them experience loss early in life, and how to deal with sacrifice for others. Children are great about that sometimes. They're like, Mom, Dad, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. I don't have to have that. I don't have to be first. It's all right. Very humbling. Helping rule. You say yes to any and every opportunity to help. But do you see how that can be turned against love? Usually those closest to us, the priorities of our lives are left unloved. And we help everyone else around us. The karma rule. If I treat others well, things will go well for me. But what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? Jesus never promises things will go easy for you in your life. Or you'll be just blessed with tons of riches. There's no promise for that. So what if things don't go well? Bitterness comes in. But God, I'm doing this for you. But I just helped this person. B 
be the change rule. Something's going to happen. I've got to do it myself. Or at least start it. I'm not going to ask anyone else for help. That's just exhausting. How can you love if you always do that? The checklist rule. My last one here. The more I accomplish, the more I get done, the more God, proud God will be of me. And the more I feel satisfied with myself. But when you get frustrated when you fall short, or God forbid you succeed, and you remind the rest of us how we don't succeed, my gosh, right? A lack of love. Why do each of these rules stop working? To make us better lovers of God and others, to make us better people. Because each has a loophole. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to explain in verses 14 through 23. We're going to talk about why, sorry, does my once helpful rule stop working? This has everything to do with two fundamentally different views of what corrupts a person, what defiles a person. Jesus challenges, totally challenges the idea that forces and influences outside of us, external to us, corrupt a person. He says that there is nothing outside a person, right here he says this, there's nothing outside a person that can defile him. And he asks us, are you without understanding about this? And most of us are without understanding. Right? We not only want to believe forces outside of ourselves are the problem and corrupt us, we feel we must believe this lest we implode with guilt and shame for messing up, right? Dr. Phil has taught us to get that off of us. Consider the times when you're really honest about sin and failure in your life, about your weaknesses, your faults. Think back to a community group or a small group time. Think, think to a time when you're honest with your spouse. Now, the circle I run in consists mostly of parents, all right, because I'm a parent. And here's how it goes. Something like this. Yeah, you know what? See, this is very humbly. You know, I, I did lose my temper. Or, you know what? No, I, I didn't really love and honor my spouse in that situation. Or, or yes, I, you know what? I gave in to that temptation or that indulgence. But here it comes. Here comes the external force. But, and raising kids is tiring. Right? Marriage is just such hard work. And there's so much pressure right now with my job. I just needed that outlet. I just needed that time. I just needed a little bit, you know, you know. You know. Do you hear that? You hear what happened there? Time, certain people, what I eat or drink, technology that distracts us, money and possessions that crowd our hearts, all these things, these are to blame. External forces are the problem. So, we look there for the solution and make rules accordingly. Right? We look there for the solution. Okay, more time towards this, less time doing this. I'm not going to spend as much time with that person because that, they're trouble. I'm going to spend more time with this person who's encouraged. Right? And we have to make these rules in our lives. Because we think that's where, that's where the problem is. It's out there, and it's coming, and it's attacking me in here. Jesus says the real problem, producing evil thoughts, sexual immorality, coveting, wickedness, another way to put that is unlove, comes from within. In fact, God's law and his rules only expose more the sin nature within us, this tendency within us to rebel and say, no, 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 I want to do life my own way. 
So Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, he says that sin, this inward desire to rebel that manifests itself outwardly, sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment, through God's law, and produces in me all kinds of covetousness, wanting what other people have. Apart from the law, sin lies dead, right? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the, the law or the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You hear that? Sin uses the law like a defibrillator, right? It's just dead, but here comes the law. Clear. Now it's alive. Sin here, sin came, used the commandment, I died. The very commandment that promised life, he goes on to say, proved death to me. It promised life, it brought death. So the Bible is clear, it's not an external problem. But you might protest, yeah, but Ryan, but that's God's law, not, that's not man-made rules, that's what you're talking about here. But that's exactly how we respond to failing at God's law with more law, with our own rules. So if the problem is coveting, we we either stop hanging out with the person whose life or stuff we covet, or I'll just cut out more stuff from my own life. In other words, we add more law to do God's law better next time. Does that make sense? Here's the solution. I have sinned. I messed up towards God's law. I'm going to add another law into my life to make me better at doing God's law. Isn't that, it's so twisted, but that's how we run our lives by default. And so Paul covers this issue too in Colossians 2 very brilliantly. Is in Colossians 2, 20-23. I'm going to read the New Living Translation. I think it captures it well. You, as a you Christian, you have died with Christ. He has set you free from the evil powers of this world. So why? Why do you keep on following rules of the world such as don't handle this, don't eat this, don't touch this? These things seem wise. Notice that they seem wise because they require strong devotion, humility, and severe discipline. But they have no effect when it comes to conquering a person's evil thoughts and desires. You see that? You think it's going to work. I'm going to add more law. That's going to help me be a better lover of God and others and a better person. But they can't do it. God's law and the rules we make up to live up to his law have the same effect. They cannot deliver what they promise. Can't do it. So what should we do about it? I want to give two or three thoughts here in order of importance. Number one, finally admit. Just lay down your pride and finally admit that my problem is a person, but my solution is also a person. I'll explain what I mean. The late, great John Stott, I once heard him say that the essence of sin is that we human beings are substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. So, if that's the case, why then are we trying to find a substitute for our substitute, right? Does that make sense? Why are we trying to substitute in rules for a Savior? Like, it's like Jesus isn't enough. Clinging to him, following him, trusting him isn't enough. We're just going to try to find a substitute for that, our own rules. 
Why do we do that? I think why we do that is because Jesus is a person. And he scares us. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Notice he's reminding them, I'm God. Teaching as doctrines the rules of men. Again, rules, strategies, goals to look and act more Christian. Such we can control, we can modify, we can, we can alter. If the Jesus thing just gets to be a little too much, a little too intense, we can, here come the rules. But God's rescue plan is through a person, Jesus. And man, he can be scary. Right? He's unpredictable, risk-taking, jolting in speech. He can undress a man right there with his words. Whoa, how did you know that about my life? How did you look into my soul and know what's really there? I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about that any safer version of the Savior, and we're still just playing religion. It's hard to trust a person. He says, I want to ask you this question. When you hear Jesus say, I am the way, I am the door, I am the gate. Right? I am the way, I am the door, I am the gate. How do you answer into what? Right? The way door, the gate. Into what? How do you answer that question? Is it only a formula that Jesus and the cross, is, it's, just, it's a bridge to the Heavenly Father? Or is, not, is Jesus the door, not also the prison break from a life of lukewarmness to a life of liber- liberation? Jesus the gate helps us break out of that lukewarm life to a life of liberation. Is he not also that? When we open wide our lives to him, that's when our lives can be wide open. Finally live wide open. You can be a parent who asks their child to partner with them to serve their community, and you're surprised at their response. Yeah, mom or dad, I want to do that. The eligible bachelor or et set free to spend their Fridays being more missionary than trying to fill that void in here by whatever they do on Fridays. Surprising a leader or a pastor or an elder and asking, man, how can I grow? You know, I want to be challenged with more. What can I be challenged with? Giving yourself to praying more for the nation, starting with this one. Calling up an old enemy to reconcile with them or an old ex out of the blue. Because you are liberated to do that. Doing the radically unlikely because Jesus has freed you from the rules of your life. So that's the first thing we can do about this problem. Second thing is to constantly reevaluate your rule about the law of love. Constantly reevaluate your rule your discipline, your habit, your priority by the law of love. Regularly ask the question, does this help me love Jesus and love others? Does this truly help me love Jesus and love others? And when it doesn't, you got to let it go. Let it go. Don't serve the rule. Let the rule serve love. I want to give you an example in the here and now. I'll use our church. We've been training, prepping, inviting, and finally doing these Christianity Explorer dinner groups, right? 
And they have served us because they've helped us love Jesus and others. I've seen God use these groups to nudge a number of you to step out a little further, right? To be surprised a little more both by people's responsiveness and your own boldness to, to step out and get those words out of your mouth when you want to come to hear more about Jesus. A little more in wonder at the power of the gospel once more. But will Christianity Explorer always help us as a church love Jesus and love our neighbor? Not necessarily. At some point, if we kept doing it, we'll start to treat it like a magic wand, right? Things are getting kind of kind of in a rudder church. Poof, let's do Christianity Explored. No, it's a man-made rule. Or fundraising for future facilities, our leadership is trusting God. He will, he will use this fundraising effort to help strengthen our love towards Jesus and our love for our neighbor, the little saints, and the surrounding community through a potential facility. So now it's a great habit, priority, discipline. But if we're still doing it five years from now, I'm pretty sure it will not be a love toward one another. It will just be a burden. See, we have these rules. We see some success. We might be tempted to say, you know what? That worked for me. And the answer, friends, to that is always no. Jesus worked. Let's pray. Father, we recognize in our lives we all have a governing rule or rules that we turn to. We can't live up to your law. We can't love as we want to. We can't be the people we want to be. That's so what we do is we add more law. We add more rules. If only I withhold this or take this away. The Pharisees got so entrenched in that, those rules They miss the opportunity to love. They miss the Jesus in front of them and the opportunity to love their neighbor. Because the rules had apparently served them so well for so long. But they had begun to let the rules rule their life. And they missed God and Jesus Christ ruling their lives. Help us not make the same mistake, Father. Help us to, Lord. Beware of people who will come along and say, oh, but do you and your church take, the, take Saturdays off instead of Sundays? Do you, do you do communion every week? Do you practice membership? Do you do this? Do you do that? Some of these things can be great wisdom, Lord, in the right time and seasons. But when we're distinguished by these things and we treat these things as a governing rule, they don't produce love. They only produce sin. Frustration. Help us, Jesus, be willing to follow you, a person, the gate, the door, the way, a pathway from a lukewarm life and bondage to rules to a life of liberation and excitement and adventure and freedom. We ask this all in your name. Amen.